A Boeing 737-800 is landing in Trinidad and Tobago on a three-leg flight. How did a tired pilot and poor crew resource management cause this aircraft to overrun the runway? Oh, we're recording. <laughs> Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hi. Hello. Hello. This is episode 20. Woo! Whoop whoop! We made it. <laughs> we made it to episode 20. To 20, guys. That means we've been doing this for 20 weeks now. Holy. Wow. That's not even half a year. Nope. Not yet. Very close. <laughs> eh. Like Six. seven more. Yeah. Six more? Six more. I don't know math. Six more. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm a music it's a teacher. Leap year we only, it's a leap year we only had one day, not a whole week. <laughs> Okay, listen. <laughs> I just did like super quick math. It's more than twenty five, so yes. I just added two. Okay, well Sorry. it was one. <laughs> twenty six. Anyway. Anyway, so today we're covering Caribbean Airlines Flight Five Twenty Three. Thank you to Joseph Muhammad for suggesting this flight. Yeah, this one and the next two that follow this are recommendations. Actually, we really appreciate it, guys. I don't remember what the next two. That's okay. You don't need to know. That's okay. our job. To tell. <laughs> it's our job to tell you. <laughs> so this was a flight that occurred on July 30th of 2011. Oh, it's current. Yeah, it is pretty darn current. It's almost it's nine years ago. Uh-huh. Wow. Wasn't this... expecting that. I know. I know. We don't do a lot of crashes that are like in the 2000s. I know. Or the 2010s to be more specific. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a 737-800 with the tail number of 9Yankee-Papa-Bravo-Mike. It was manufactured in 2007, and it had over 14,000 hours on it already. So that means in four years, it had been flying for about half of that entire time it existed. That's a lot. Yeah, it was a pretty hefty workload. That's like me driving to Brighton every day. Yeah, it's pretty normal on a lot of airplanes. Actually, a lot of them get more than that by then, but that's still pretty hefty. Was this just like an island hopper plane, kind uh, of? Sort of. It still had some pretty hefty schedule. I mean, for example, this flight was from New York City to Port of Spain in Trinidad and Tobago. And Shout out to our to... listeners in Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah. <laughs> we have like, I think 3% of our listens come from that area. Yeah, thanks for so, listening. Yeah, either it's Super one, cool. it's a group of people or somebody's binging. It is where the airline is based by the way oh cool yep and then it carried on to georgetown and guyana does that mean that where's that <laughs> uh it's in south america it's on the north end of south america okay is joseph our listener in trinidad and tobago yeah he might be in hi tobago. joseph thanks for binging if you are yeah. let us know hi Welcome. hello yeah so yeah i mean they would use it for relatively long routes as well i mean new york city to port of spain and trinidad and tobago is pretty far so question, is there like only one city in Trinidad and Tobago? No, 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 no. There's more. But okay. that one is the big one. Is it Tobago or Tobago? The flight was from New York City to Port of Spain to Piarco, specifically, in Trinidad and Tobago. And that was just for a fuel stop. And then it carried on to Georgetown and Guyana Hold to on. the... It's Tobago. Oh, take okay, Tobago. Sorry, to be Tobago so bad. I know it sounds so what much better. What do the locals say? Joseph, tell us. Yeah, <laughs> if you're I'm, from Trinidad and Tobago, <laughs> I'm sorry for pronouncing it wrong. Either way, <laughs> me too. <laughs> All right. Anyways, so the more important leg of this flight after it went to Port of Spain was on to Georgetown in Guyana to the Chetty Jagan International Airport or Hagan. The captain was 52 years old, and he had 9,600 hours total, of which 5,000 hours were on the 737. 
So that's quite a bit. The first officer, on the other hand, was 23 years old, and he had 1,400 hours and only 350 on the 737. 1,400 hours. We're 23 years old. Yeah. Uh, in the United States, you're required to have 1,500 hours to be airline transport rated. So he only had 1,400 at the time, and 350 of that were gained on the 737. Both pilots were required to wear glasses. There were 157 passengers and six crew on board. The captain was the pilot flying, and the first officer was pilot not flying, or pilot monitoring. The aircraft departed Piarco at 12.36 a.m. local time. That was in the middle of the night. Really in the middle of the night. Really in the middle of the night. From flight level 330, or 33,000 feet, they were then cleared for descent and cleared for an RNAV approach, approach, which is a GPS non-precision approach. So in other words, it doesn't use many of the instruments for the approach to the actual runway. It just gets you into the general area. It can do actually a lot of... It can get you pretty accurate, but an ILS approach will get you to the right place, the right mark on the runway. They were cleared by ATC for all of this for approach to runway 06 at Georgetown. The flight was generally normal the whole time, They, but they did have to deviate slightly for some weather on their approach. Some thunderstorms. Thunderstorms? Some thunderstorms. They encountered some light rain on descent, but nothing more. The flight, cor- the flight crew reported to air traffic control that the airport was visually in sight as they crossed the final approach fix, which is a designated point on your approach that basically, like this point, you should be on your final approach for the runway. You have it visually in sight, you're in line. The captain then disconnected the autopilot and configured the aircraft for landing. Just before crossing the threshold of the runway, the captain commented that they were not going to make the landing that time. They crossed over the threshold and floated down the runway. The captain then declared a go-around, and the first officer acknowledged. But three seconds later, they touched down, 4,700 feet past the threshold, with only 2,700 feet remaining, and the captain engaged the thrust reversers and steadily applied the brakes. Full braking power was not applied until 250 feet prior to the end of the runway, or 450 feet before the end of the pavement. There was a 200-foot runout past the end of the runway. The aircraft then exited the end of the runway and the end of the pavement and traveled about 130 feet past the end of the pavement and 64 feet to the left of the extended center line. So in other words, 64 it deviated and turned 64 feet to the left, ending up downhill in a ditch after crossing a road and impacting the hill very hard. So... He said go around, right? Yep. He was like, we're going to go around. Yep. Why did they land anyway? Well, that's what's in question. However... I I don't get... So, he said go around, and three seconds later, they touched down. So... You can still take off from that point, though. You don't have to do the the thrust reversers automatically. We'll get into that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, you can still touch down and go, okay, increase power and lift. Like... (laughs) You can always go around. We have that on the website, by the way. I can't remember which one which blog it's on, but I listen to it like on a loop. <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while, I'll get, it'll get stuck in my head. I'm like, oh, you can always go around. <laughs> so they landed at 1.32 in the morning. So this was in the dark on a wet runway, and they plowed into a ditch. Injuries after this accident, everyone had survived. However, one passenger had a severely broken leg that resulted in an eventual ampu- ampu- amputation. Oh, good lord. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> amputation yes his broken leg resulted in an amputation and another passenger had severe burns to their hands after touching the hot engine cowlings after evacuating the airplane why would you do that why would you touch the engines (laughs) i don't know i mean maybe to steady yourself but they're below i they're below the wing so i don't understand why you'd touch the engine i have been trying to figure out how they put themselves next to the engines and touched them but i cannot and i'm not the one to say how i don't know 
Some reports from news outlets stated that there may have been up to 35 injuries from the impact and evacuation that included neck, back, and other leg injuries. Ow. Yeah. While the passengers managed to evacuate relatively quickly, the flight crew were trapped in the cockpit due to the crumpling of the fuselage in in that area. It took 25 minutes for them to escape after the first officer managed to break away part of the cockpit door and crawl out. It was later determined that the crew had not been properly trained on other means of evacuating the cockpit. Like the rope? Well... The windows were jammed, actually. So the windows were not an option in this case, actually. However, the uh, cockpit door was also jammed by the lavatory door. The lavatory door had actually swung open and got jammed stuck in front of the cockpit door, and they they couldn't open the cockpit door. However, what they didn't know is that the cockpit door was actually designed to have breakaways. You take out the hinge pins, and there's two breakaway panels. Do they train for that? They do now. Yeah, I was going to say, they do now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they So, do now. go back to the other picture. Okay, so do you see how it, close the engines are to the ground on because they're on a hill, kind of? Mm-hmm. That might be how they were able to touch the engines. Yeah, but if you look at the evacuation doors, they're over the wing, and you're supposed to slide backward. Yeah, and if for them to go forward, they actually would have had to make a bigger jump yeah. than off the rear end of the wing. So I don't know how they... I'll get into how they exited this airplane when we get to uh, findings, because okay. it is pretty detailed, and it was a mess. Oh, good. It That's was, why I asked you to cover it. It me. was really <laughs> a mess. Well, that might have something to do with how they burn themselves, I guess. So but... while you have this picture up, oh, this previous picture one, up. yes, I'll talk about wreckage to this airplane. Okay. The aircraft impacted the ditch very hard, which caused the fuselage to snap into at approximately the location of the bulkhead that separated the first class and economy cabins. So that was literally the wall where it separated completely into between the first class and the pa- the economy passenger cabins. There was no post-crash fire, which is pretty lucky, considering the flight crew couldn't get out for 25 minutes. Uh, several pieces of the airplane, including overhead bins, collapsed on the passengers. Well, aren't they not supposed to do that? They are not supposed to do that, so but why they did. did that happen? Because uh, the airplane fell apart. <laughs> I mean, but aren't they supposed to be designed so even if the airplane falls apart, that they don't come off the ceiling? Eh, sort of. It's hard to say what happens when an airplane literally just snaps in two, basically. The nose landing gear collapsed and pushed rearward through the fuselage into the area containing the aircraft's avionics and electronics. Crap. Yeah. The main landing gear was buried in the dirt very deep. The engines were both destroyed and the thrust reversers were found partially deployed. The engines had severe damage from FOD from the impact. Can you define that, please? So FOD is foreign object damage. So in other words, they impacted the ground and they sucked in a bunch of dirt and leaves, trees, metal. A bunch of stuff on the ground. Yep. And if you see the picture on our website of the engine, you will understand why. Because the bottom of it was completely destroyed and impacted, and some parts it's of the messed up. some parts of the front of the engine were likely sucked into the fan blades. The engine, yeah. Uh... Yeah. The flaps were found retracted, and some of the spoilers had fallen flat against the wings, likely because of hydraulics. The spoilers had fallen flat. The airplane destroyed the airport boundary fence, and large marks were left along the path where the tires plowed through the dirt and grass Evacua- evacuation was severely hindered by damage to the fuselage one of the forward galley closets was broken loose and then jammed in the way of the the exit door blocking exit from the front left door the forward lavatory door had broken and jammed preventing the cockpit door from opening and several of the slides had trouble deploying one tore upon deployment as a matter of fact oh dear lord it was a mess needless to say that's what i got for a wreckage also for a visual reference yeah the... so the first red mark the one on the left 
is where they touch down. And the second red mark is where tire marks began to show from the brake usage. But that is also still not quite where they applied the brakes to full. Miranda's dumbfounded. They should have got around. They should have just increased engine power and went around. Like, there was no, there's no way with that amount of runway that they could have stopped at 737. There's no way. Nope. Also, how did they not touch down before that point? Were they not paying attention? We'll get, I'll into, get that. into that. Great. Because <laughs> that's, have to put that that's a, a lot of runway that they didn't. They had so much runway and they were like, oh, look, there. Oh, yeah, right. There that. is a lot contributing to wow. this. Wow. Okay. So, as Nick had mentioned, upon examining the wreckage, they found that the flaps were retracted at zero degrees. That's not good. Why were they retracted? Give me a minute. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, this is way more complicated than I thought. So investigators went into the cockpit to confirm that's what the flaps were set to was zero degrees. That's not what it was set to. The flight crew had flaps at 30 degrees. So was there a mechanical failure where the flaps didn't extend? Upon analyzing the flap controls unit, they found that was not the case at all. Further investigation showed that the cable that is controlled by the lever was tugged taut when the plane fractured at the crash site, and so it pulled the flaps in. Oh, Okay. So they weren't that dumb. No. So the flaps were extended. They just ended up because of yep. the crash. But man, that must have been really confusing to investigators. It's yeah. like, they touched down really late and ran over, and the flaps were retracted. Well, no wonder. But at the same time, that's not that's why. That's what happened. Because the flaps retracted after impact into the dirt. In accordance with the weather conditions and knowing about previous events like TAM 3054, which we covered a few episodes back, investigators took a look at the runway to see if there were any defects, and there weren't. There weren't any potholes, and the runway was nicely grooved and didn't have any standing water. They also did some friction analysis and found that there was no noticeable friction loss either on the runway or the turn area of the high-speed exit off the runway. However, the runway didn't have one thing that is actually globally required by the International Civil Aviation Organization, or the ICAO, and that is a runway end safety area. The runway did have an additional 200 feet of usable paved surface at each end, but it didn't have the explicit safety area which investigators surmise may have reduced the severity of the crash. Yeah, because here in Denver, don't they have, like, collapsible extra stuff we, so if you overrun a one way it just yes, stinks <laughs> we we do have that also they're talking about also the distance beyond that there's like usually flat dirt some distance and and such and they didn't have that what they had was a drop and a road and a road at mm. the end of the runway it's a good thing they didn't hit anybody on the road yeah it was a little dirt road wasn't very busy the second question they had regarding the runway was its lighting configuration though the crew didn't say anything about not being able to see the runway Runway 06 did not have approach lights or lighting on the center line to help guide pilots. This, coupled with the dark, dense jungle around the airport, could have created a black hole effect, which could have contributed to an optical illusion, along with their lights reflecting off the wet runway, that they were further away. They would have thought they were further than they were. As a Category 1 runway, Runway 06 is required to have approach lights where physically practicable and is recommended to have center line lighting, though it isn't mandatory. So then why doesn't it have it? I don't know. The runway was pretty old at that point, and actually they had already put in place plans to extend the runway. So they were planning to redo the whole thing as it was anyways. The runway as it was was old. Okay. Well, that still doesn't mean that you don't put in approach lights. But wait, there's more. 
The runway had white runway end identifier lights, or rails. Yes, R-E-I-L. Yes. Yes. But they were not operating at the time of the accident. These were also not a requirement, but investigators say this may have assisted the crew in discerning the end of the runway. The runway also didn't have distance-to-go markers like most airports do every thousand feet. Though these also weren't required, they could have helped, and they were installed by the time the report was released. Interestingly enough, though, the investigators did not name any of these as a contributory factor of the crash, so let's move on to some more culpable aspects. One kind of lighting they did have, though, was still wrong. Yep. They had pappy lights, which are approach lights. They are... Um, they a, are but to, a specific kind. They are a specific kind of approach light that assists... These lights assist in your glide slope angle to the approach of the runway. They're generally red and white. The higher you are, they should go all white, and the lower they are... The lower you are, they should go all red. The saying is red, you're dead. PAPI stands for Precision Approach Path Indicator Light. So the the PAPI lights at this airport were in service and they were visually using them and it told them that they were too low for their approach. However, it was also found that the PAPI lights were not properly adjusted for the correct three degree glide slope for this runway. So the glide slope for this runway didn't even match what the PAPI lights would tell the pilots visually. And that only matters in a case like this flight where they weren't using the instrument glide slope for the runway. They were using the Happy lights visually as an approach to the runway and it told them they were low it also told it was also incorrect for the glide slope it wasn't that far off but it was con- considered a danger to pilots if it had been just for reference the glide slope angle of the pappy lights was at 2.39 degrees not three degrees instead of three mm-hmm. yep so it would have been too low and with the optical illusions that already were plus the jungle plus the night plus the weather this could have been really really dangerous and they may have actually if they had stayed too low they may have actually hit something prior to getting to the runway okay but here's still my issue with that great they didn't have lights and the lights they had were incorrect, and they should have had a way to see the runway. I get it. However, the captain did say he wanted to go around, and twice. he didn't go around. And actually, he indicated three times. Yeah, I think. like no. they knew they were Just not twice. in the right spot. No, he indicated twice. He oh, already okay. said once he wasn't going to do it. Then he continued. Then he said he was going around specifically. Okay. And they he were. He specifically said go around once. Yes, but he indicated. Anyway, let's look at times. the crew, shall we? Yeah. Just saying. Like the the captain said that they should go around when about when they touch down. Yep. And Which I'm still confused why they didn't Okay. Anyway. So there's a lot. So, as we know, the flight landed in the 1 a.m. hour, which is really early and gross. The captain had a two and a half hour nap between 5 a.m. and 10 p.m., but said he felt well rested enough, though it's well known that individuals are not the best at being able to determine their own fatigue levels. He was off for 24 hours prior to the flight. However, he was in a union meeting up until that two and a half hours before the the flight, and that's when he got his two and a half hours of rest. He was in a union meeting because he was one of the chairs for the union. Still. And he was in that meeting for a good portion of the day, and then it only gave him two and a half hours to rest between the union meeting and his flight. He claimed, though, that that gave him plenty of rest time. So, fun fact, humans cannot properly function on less than six hours of sleep. And a lot of people have do try to, but it's very, very, very hard to be able to fully 100% function on anything less than six hours. As such, there are regulations in place that require a certain amount of sleep before being allowed to fly. It is also in the contract for Caribbean Airlines. It's in their contract. Yep. 
And he still decided. I know. I know. Dude. The young, young first officer was on reserve from 5 a.m. to noon, and he found out at 8 a.m. that he would be flying this flight. He considered himself to be well-rested, which I am way more inclined to believe. Yeah, well, how much did it say how much rest he got? No, I literally just said exactly what it said, but given that he didn't have anything to do... He had... At least my portion didn't. I saw it. Okay. That's okay, continue. Go for it, and we'll, we'll look it up. We'll circle back. So the captain said there was not a standard operating procedure for Caribbean Airlines that said to check charts for wet runways and said he didn't have any guidance for making such a landing and didn't know the proper flap configuration for such an attempt. He had 5,000 hours of experience on the 737. Okay, that's a bunch of BS. Sorry. That's to make sure you don't get your butt in trouble. That's Mm -hmm. what that is. However, Boeing's flight crew operations manual that Caribbean Airlines used for training, mind you, says to land with flap at 40 degrees to minimize landing distance so that you can then land at a lower speed. He also said, the captain, that he was never trained to do a go-around at touchdown. Okay, I have a hard time believing that, This too. is a load of crap. That's, I'm sorry, that's a, um, come on, really? <laughs> we literally just said you can always go around. This is trained yep. from, like, when you're learning how to fly. When you're a private pilot, yeah, yeah. When you're learning how to fly, they teach you how to do a go-around. Yep. In case you need to do it. It's it literally in the song, it's like, my flight instructor <laughs> once, told <me. laughs> once told me you can always go around. Because literally, it's like the one of the things that, one of the first things they learn is like, if you need to go around, go around. Yep. Now, to play devil's advocate for just a second, Boeing's manual does say that if reverse thrust is initiated, you must make a full stop landing, and this is what Caribbean Airlines trained. However, he should have activated automatic go-around, which is enabled on this plane. You literally just flick a switch, and it goes around for you. Okay, listen. (laughs) This is so stupid. The, the captain and I can't, the first officer was really young. He had 1,400 hours of experience. I can't say that he would 100% know. He still should have known, but. He still should have, but the captain for sure should have understood how to do a go around by the time they touched down. He instead opted to do a manual go around. So he was going to manually increase thrust and pull back on the stick. Which is also valid. It but... is also valid. However, he also has the option when he. To go around, just push the button, which, by the way, is on the throttle. I was going to ask, where okay, is it? Listen, it's, okay, listen, that's even more stupid. Okay, that's a bunch of BS. You push then. I'm sorry. the button and it, it initiates go around. I, I'm sorry. This captain literally was just trying to make up stuff so he wouldn't get in trouble. He literally just wasn't paying attention. Yep. Investigators wanted to verify if this was the case that he didn't know how to land on a wet runway, which they already suspected was dumb. They interviewed other Caribbean airline pilots who knew the guidance for wet runway landings, and they said that they were trained every six months for go-arounds and missed approaches. Mm-hmm. Brandon's going to get violent. <laughs> By the way, the uh, first officer had 11 hours of rest prior to his. 11 oh, hours so of off fine. time. 11 hours of off time. Good job. Yeah, so he was fine. I totally believe him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the captain, man, this captain, I, I don't know. I just, I don't know. He shouldn't be flying a plane. Let me just say that. All right. But wait, there's more. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> After descending below 11,000 feet, there was a, quote, considerable amount of light chatter in the cockpit, most of it unrelated to flying the aircraft, end quote. As we know, and those who have listened to previous episodes You're know, kidding me. You're supposed to have a sterile cockpit. Below 10,000 feet. Below 10,000 feet. <sighs> now, it did say 11,000 feet, so they had 1,000 feet, but still. Yeah, but you should not be, like, having a conversation. You should be ready to figure out how you're going to land the plane. 
Mm-hmm. The CVR indicated that there was a temporary temporary loss of situational awareness, which is a fancy phrase used to say that the flight crew didn't know where they were in relation to the runway and how much was left of it. The investigators also weren't sure if the captain knew that they had floated down the runway because his of his high power setting of 59% power on the engines. What is normal for landing? Nick? Uh, by the time of touchdown, you should be at idle. So there's that. They're going too fast. By about 10 feet above, you should be pulling to idle at the very least but i would say as you're i mean it's really discretionary there's no like dead set yeah but you shouldn't be at almost 60 percent. yeah no that's too much mm-hmm. you're going to the engines are going too fast when yeah. interviewed the first officer said he knew they were floating and remembered the captain saying something about it but that didn't actually happen according to the cvr the cvr also recorded the captain saying he was going around three seconds before touching down and the first officer acknowledged but they never actually did it this is a violation of their training at Caribbean Airlines, as they train that once a go-around decision is made, you can't not do it. Right. Also, three seconds before touchdown is nothing. Yeah. This was indicative of a loss of awareness, as that call should have been made long before three seconds before touchdown. Well, more than likely, he was caught off guard by the touchdown. I know. They didn't realize how close they were and how far down the runway they were. And Also, if he wanted to go around, he shouldn't have deployed his thrust reversers. Yeah, I don't... That's the thing I don't understand. Like, he just went into Auto, he went into autopilot after that. They touch down and then straight to thrust reverser. However, it's exactly what you do when you touch down in a. Yep. He didn't go to autopilot because he only partially deployed the. That's just reversers. dumb. I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't understand anything that's happening. This, Uh. coupled with the fact that the captain did not apply full pressure to the brakes until 250 feet of pavement was remaining, meant that they they were not using adequate stopping power for the remaining distance. Simulations were run to test several other scenarios to determine if it would have been possible to stop in time. The first was to test if the airplane would have had adequate stopping power had they touched down at the designated touchdown marks much earlier on the runway, but using the same configuration. It was determined the plane would have stopped. The second test was if the plane would have stopped in time using 40 degrees flaps, full reversers, and immediate full brakes after landing where they did. It also was determined that that was possible. But neither of the crew fully recognized or mentioned any of the noted discrepancies during the approach and after touchdown. Overall, there was a huge breakdown in crew resource management. Shocker. I'm just glad no one died, like, from the stupidity of this captain. Honestly. And to be fair, the f- the first officer, though relatively inexperienced, could have done something too, and he didn't do anything either. He should have asked the captain after they touched down when he said he was doing a go-around, like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. You said you were going around. Right. Why are you not, not doing that? <laughs> right. He may have still believed that it was not his place because he was too young and new. Right, and I hate that so much. But as we will get into in a future episode, there is a culture in the cockpit that the first officer has the right to question the captain. Yep. Yeah, like, dude, what are you doing? In that regard, they are on equal standing. Yep. Yeah, that's just, like, he could have done something too. I realized he was very young. He was a lot more inexperienced than the captain was, but he could have done something to be like, this is against regulation, per, this isn't... By the way, per Caribbean Airlines procedures, operating procedures, if a go-around is called by either pilot, it doesn't matter which pilot it is that can that initiates the actual go-around sequence. So in other words, the captain could have, yeah, the captain could have said, uh, go-around, and then he may not have been the one to initiate that, the first officer was allowed to then 
take control and initiate the actual go-around sequence over the captain. He could have said my plane and taken it. Yes. You and that should have. Yes, he should have. And you're always allowed to do that if you're pilot monitoring and you think mm-hmm. the other pilot's not doing what they're supposed to. You say my aircraft and you take over. So he definitely could have done something about that and he just didn't. Right. Okay, we stop in. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, welcome back. Time for some findings. So there actually were a lot, a lot of findings on this. However, I have uh, anti-D uncomplicated these. <laughs> As best That's as I can. That's gonna be a thing. <laughs> oh dear lord! I feel so sad because no one is a patron yet, so they can't. They don't know where that came from. But, I know. Oh my gosh! It's so every time it's just so good. It's okay. It's so good. Anti D uncomplicated these for you guys, or simplified. You know, <laughs> layman's. Term. I like anti decomplification for, for all you simple people. <laughs> can that even fit on a shirt? Anti-decomplification. Anti-de-uncomplification. complification Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> we'll figure out how to make it work. All right. So, for the findings. Um, some of these I will end up reading verbatim because for the evacuation portion. However, in the general findings, they found that the pilots increased power on short final but did not significantly reduce power before touchdown. That was what we just talked about. They found that the captain reduced power then increased power slightly three seconds before touchdown. So in other words, he did begin to do a go-around sequence. However, a manual go-around. However, he he second-guessed it himself. You can see this when you, you look at what they found on the FDR and the CVR combined and how he said, we're going to go around three seconds before touchdown, and he began to increase power. Then they touched down, and he immediately reduced and went into reverse, rather than continuing to increase power and lifting the airplane. So you can see his train of thought. He was so back and forth with the throttles through all this. Like, he he even began... The reason they even touched down was because he had slightly reduced the power, and then that three seconds before, he cl- he declared go-around and increased power. So then they touched down from that decrease he had just done. It's just hard for me to fathom how he could be so indecisive given how many hours of experience he had. I know, I know. but he was tired. And while I they know. said in the, the, one of the findings, and I didn't write it down, but one of the findings was actually that... While there were yawns heard in the cockpit and sighs, it was not. There was not enough evidence to prove that fatigue was a factor. It's However, definitely to, a factor. To me, it's pretty clear. It's pretty evident. I just said if it's you have less than night. six hours of sleep, I'm telling you, it's science. It's the middle of the night. They're coming to the end of their final leg of their trip. Yeah, they've only circadian- had two and a half hours of sleep. Are you kidding me? And your right. circadian rhythm usually dictates at one o'clock in the morning you sleep. Right. Unless you've had enough sleep before that point, which he did not. Right. Anyways, they found that the excess power resulted in the aircraft touching down 4,700 feet past the threshold of the runway. The spoilers did deploy and tests proved that they were working prior to touchdown and during touchdown. The They found that the captain did not select full reverse thrust once touched down. They found that the brakes were tested to full power and were found to be working. However, they found that the pilot, the captain, did not apply full pressure or 3,000 PSI to the brakes until 
There was 250 feet of runway remaining. Question, because you'll know the answer to this. Mm -hmm. What is the normal time that they use the brakes? Is it right when you touch down? No, no, it's actually not usually. In this case, he should have seen the end of the runway coming and could have applied the brakes very immediately. Instead, they found that he was easing his way into the brakes and didn't go to full... Like, he eased his way all the way to full brakes rather than just pressing all the way to full when he realized there wasn't much time. And normally when you touch down, actually you would never use full braking on a normal landing. There's in most airline, in most airline uh, or transport type aircraft, there's actually an auto brake function where you can tell it how much braking power you want it to apply on its own and it will ease that pressure in like he did automatically as you as the airplane slows down from the reversers and the spoilers that way it doesn't burn out the brakes on landing because you still want the brakes to work but they work better at slower speeds okay thank you i was just wondering they found that the wet surface of the runway did not have a prominent impact on the stopping power of the aircraft the aircraft also didn't slide nope nope so it can't really be a factor because it didn't really slide right it was more of a mental hindrance because he didn't know how to land on a wet runway, which I think is still BS. I'm pretty sure that's BS. I think he was just trying to cover his butt. Yeah, he pretty much was from, from everything he said. So that he wouldn't get in trouble is what I think. But, right. you know. Yep. Speculation. Speculation. Okay. So, as for the cabin safety findings in the report, I will read these ones verbatim because this was just too much to try to write down. I mean, it's really not, but it is. They found that the L1 door was jammed due to the impact damage, which is the forward left door. That's where you usually come in on a plane. Yep. They found that the L2 door was not completely opened, allowing it to close onto the partially deployed slide, thereby making it unusable. So the back... The, yeah, the rear left door. The rear left door? They found that the evacuation at R1, so the forward right door, was started by a passenger and not a cabin crew member. Okay, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem. Yeah. Well, it's good that the passenger I mean, that's like, why understood. It is in the, that's is... why it's in the safety card. Yep. <laughs> that's that why, why you're supposed to know it. Card. But also, the flight attendants should have been... They should have been there. And like, yeah, you took initiative. But if unless the flight attendants are incapacitated, you shouldn't have to do that. Right. Exactly. They should be the ones actually telling you where to get off the plane, and how to get off. You. They Yeah, and they're usually the last ones off. You know, because you have to jump onto the slide. You can't just scoot on your butt, which we've... It's not like a water slide. Yeah, we've talked about that before. You have to jump. But that's very sad that a passenger had to start that and not a crew member. That's unfortunate. As for the R2 door, getting in all four now. The R2 door was open and the slide deployed. However, it was punctured during deployment. So By what? Aren't those like really tough canvas? Yes, who knows. They were also really close to the ground. Yeah, if you go back to the first picture, it looks like... You could have just exited the back of the aircraft onto the ground. Pretty much. Yeah, you could. It was very low to the ground. It was basically sitting on the ground. Yeah, see how close the back of it is to the so, ground. Ultimately, so, ultimately, the slide wasn't a big deal. It was probably yeah. because it was tangled in the fence. Oh, uh, yeah. That's valid. They found that the flight crew were initially trapped in the cockpit. They found that efforts to rescue the flight crew resulted in the evacuation not being completed until 25 minutes after the crash. They found that the cabin crew's response to the emergency could have been more effective had they used correct procedures to open the L2 exit. Which they did not, right. apparently. So the L2 door was the one that had opened and then partially shut on the partially deployed slide, making it unusable. And it was found that two cabin crew members could not figure out how to open that door properly. Oh my dear lord. What? Yeah. What? 
Yep. No, no, no. This is literally what they spend the majority of their time training to do. Yeah. It's not to pour you a cup of coffee. Right. It's not to, like, push the cart down the aisle. It's to figure out if there's an emergency, how to open everything and get everybody off. Right. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) Yep. So that's really it for all the important findings. A lot of the other ones were things we already covered, things like the pilot didn't reduce power on his flare, and the crew had the right certifications, and, you know, there's a lot of things that were that we already touched on or are just known, so... Verbatim. The probable cause of the accident was that the aircraft touched down approximately 4,700 feet beyond the runway threshold, some 2,700 feet from the end of the runway, as a result of the captain maintaining excess power during the flare, and upon touching down, failure to utilize the aircraft full deceleration capability resulted in the aircraft overrunning the remaining runway and fracturing the fuselage. The contributory factors. The flight crew's indecision as to the execution of a go-around, failure to execute a go-around after the aircraft floated some distance down the runway, and their diminished situational awareness contributed to the accident. So who, was it the MTSB that did the investigation? No. No. Who did it? I'm sorry, I guess I didn't catch that earlier. That's okay. I I don't think we actually talked about it. The NTSB was involved. Because it's a 37. And actually so was Trinidad and Tobago. The minister of Trinidad and Tobago actually came to the crash site because the airplane, the airline belonged to Trinidad and Tobago. Yep. And so therefore they wanted to be involved. The investigation was performed by the Guyana Civil Aviation Authority. Okay. And I actually have to say, the report is actually very good. Yeah. It's just very long. It's very, very, very detailed. It's also very clearly written in a Word document. Yeah, that is fair. (laughs) (laughs) Does it not open as a PDF? No, it does. It does, but you know how you can do like the automatic headings in Word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how they're like the pale light blue? Oh, Yeah. I only know because I use those frequently. Yeah, but they still did a really good job on it, to be honest. Yeah, they did. And it was like 264 pages long, which is one of the longer ones we've had recently, actually. They also, in their analysis, they pretty much glance over everything that wasn't relevant. Yeah, they do. And in the wreckage portion, like, okay, everybody got out okay, the airplane, you can see what's wrong and such, and there's obviously relevant things they had to investigate. But no, they literally, in their report, had an invest, they had a portion for every part of the airplane and how the wreckage was, like how every single part of the cabin was fractured, each one of the galleys, each one of the lavatories, all of the wing structures, all of the landing gear structures, all the tail structures. They had, like, they literally had portions for every single part of the airplane in the wreckage part of the report. Yep. So, recommendations. Recommendations. What happened? So, they recommended emphasizing the importance of standard operating procedures during pilot training. In other words, follow everything you're trained on. The airplane has standard uh, <laughs> the airplane has standard operating procedures for wet runways, for long landings, for go around. Just pay attention to them. You're trained to do it. It should be second nature to you. Pretty much. Honestly, like the go around thing, it should have been second nature. Yep. They recommended that Caribbean Airlines pilots should be trained on the importance of full thrust reversers and full braking power in a situation like this. I th- I feel like that's just common sense. He just was too tired to do. He was doing all of what that. he did normally, probably. Probably, I'm sure. They recommended emphasizing the importance of decision making, including the decision to go around and commit to those procedures. 
They recommended training crews in the use of blowout panels to evacuate the cockpit. So blowout panels, that's a really fancy term for um, literally just parts of the cockpit door that can be opened. Dismantled. Basically. (laughs) Um, So you can get out. Because some of the findings actually were that they found um, marks on the inside of the cockpit door consistent with them trying to use tools to pry open the door. They literally used the escape axe to try to pry open the door from the base. But the hinges come out. Yeah, so, but they didn't know where the hinges came out and where the two, because there's two blowout panels on the door. And they ultimately got the bottom one open, but it was kind of by accident. They they more broke it rather than... (sighs) Then managing to get the pins out correctly and opening the opening the blowout panel on the base. And then he managed to crawl out, get the, the lavatory door unstuck, basically, enough where they could get the cockpit door open and the pilot escaped. The captain escaped. I feel like, though, because after 9-11, cockpit doors got super reinforced so that people couldn't get in mm-hmm. by barging in, which is why the axe won't do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and to be fair, what we what I don't know is if those that blowout blowout hatch in the bottom was also jammed because the because of the damage, let alone the landing gear, the nose landing gear having gone through the bottom of the fuselage, it actually caused the floor in the the lavatory to delaminate, and the whole toilet fixture actually came loose. Awesome in that front lavatory because of the the damage to the fuselage there. So the floor may have been wrinkled under the cockpit door since it's literally like less than a foot away as well. And it may have been just wrinkled enough that the door was jammed. I don't know. But anyways, it took them a really long time to figure out how to get out. And, and they have. did not. They did not. It was proven. They did not know how to use the blowout panels. Which is dumb. Yep. They're there for a reason. Yep. They recommended, based on the fact that two cabin crew members were unable to properly operate the L2 door, retraining the proper procedures of operating those doors should be carried out. Yeah. Yeah, no, really. Like yeah. every six months or so, so you can remember if there's an emergency. At least annually, yeah. Uh, yeah, at least once a year, but yeah. probably six. every six months is probably Given that's good the idea. majority of your job. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, given that if there's an accident. Also, starting evacuation procedure and not having a path. Passenger, a passenger do it? Do it? Yeah. yeah. Can we talk about that? That's like not good. Yep. <laughs> That's really not good. Yep. They recommended that additions to the safety cards should be added to show safe ways of exiting the aircraft and getting off of the wings. Wait, were they not there? They showed how to get out of the airplane, but they didn't really show safe ways to get off climb, the wing. Climb down the wings because <sighs> the slides did not deploy on the wings. Um, so maybe that's how they got hurt as they tried climbing on the hot is, engine. <laughs> that is more than likely because the other part of this says, as well as to avoid touching the engine cowlings to avoid burns. You should not climb on a hot <laughs> engine uh, yeah. to get off the wing. For yeah. those of you who don't already know this, don't do that. Don't touch the engine. It's really don't hot. touch the engines. It's, really it's like your car engine after you've been on a long car ride. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Hot, hot, hot. Yeah. They recommended that there should be adjustments to the runway lighting from the Georgetown Airport. Which they did. Right. When executing the planned runway extension and including runway distance markers as well as to adjust, obviously, the Pappy lights. Which they did. Yep. They did all of those things, as a matter of fact, when they extended the runway. They fixed all of that. They did not suck at their job entirely. Nope. They worked with everybody. Not (laughs) entirely. They worked with everybody and figured it out. They recommended that it was noted that the airport 
security did not react to the crash when it happened and to retrain them. What? To react oh, when... Oh, no. Yeah, they were not... They didn't ever They come, didn't push the button. They didn't ever come to the crash the site. The rescue. Yeah. The That's airport. not good. Did that include the fire station? No. Okay. Fire fire crews were on site. This oh. is just the airport security didn't assist in any way whatsoever. I don't know if you saw in that map that I've now closed, um, but the fire station was like right at yeah, the runway. Yeah, it was runway. right at the end of the runway. That's fortunate. Yes. So if they had a fire... Which they right didn't. there. But they were lucky there wasn't a fire. Yeah, no kidding. It was, it was recommended that they consider the need for a full-time meteorological officer on site. They wanted I... somebody on site to be predicting and talking about the weather at any given moment. Yes, but I feel like that's such an adjacent thing. It is, and this was never implemented at all. Yeah, because that wasn't... I mean, it may have been why they couldn't see the end of the runway, but if they had run, proper run, runway lights, that, that would have been factor. fine. And also, yeah. the really, the rain and the wet runway weren't an issue. Be, like I said before, because the plane never slid. Right. Nope. It wasn't a traction problem. It was a pilot problem. <laughs> yes, ultimately it was pilot error. It had little to do with runway lighting or wet runway or anything like that. It really was. And granted, yeah, there may have been an illusion, but still, I mean... He knew he was supposed to go around, and he didn't. Right. And the first officer never took over, and... And that's the long and the short of it. Yeah. That's pretty much it. They just tried stopping the plane, and they didn't They didn't do enough to stop it in time. They're really lucky no one had that... Nobody died. No kidding. Like... Yeah. And they're lucky there wasn't a fire... And I think those pilots were super, super lucky. It could have been so much worse. It could have been, been so, so much worse. With the, I, I mean, I feel bad for the person whose leg got amputated. I mean, because yeah. Of... <laughs> well, and realistically, they were probably either in first class or just behind first class yeah, because of probably, where it fractured. And I hope, I hope they those. sued the airline. I sure hope so. I hope they sued the airline because that was totally the um, pilot's yeah. fault. I don't even know if I would have had them sue the airline, but the pilot himself. The pilot because the airline did everything correctly. Yeah, it wasn't a procedure issue. Usually, though, if you're going to press charges against the pilots, you still I have to do know. it pressing charges Via against airline, yeah. a, through the airline. But and the airlines was, will still protect their pilots. But if it was me personally, I wouldn't have a problem with the airline. I would have a problem with the individual. Obviously. Yeah, I would not be happy if I had a broken leg that had to get amputated because... You were dumb. Someone yeah. was dumb and didn't do what they were supposed to. But it's really hard to say. I mean, it's hard to say all the circumstances and everything and i don't know where it went from there to be honest no and we never really get into the legalities after the fact mostly because i don't care to it's not my job to <laughs> no, you the fa- like you can do the, that research on your own i'm telling you the facts of what happened and what yeah. came from that what 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 the airline industry learned from it and made better Feel free to initiate a discussion on our Facebook page. That's your prerogative. Or email us or put something on the website to talk about it. But I'm just saying I would have sued the the airline or the pilot or the pilots. Yomp. Because that's just ridiculous. That's my own opinion, of course. (laughs) Me me too. I would hope more people than just me would be like, yeah, that's pretty dumb. That pilots are pretty dumb. (laughs) Yep. Okay, well, that was Caribbean Airlines Flight 523. Which is, by the way, BW 523. BW. Yeah, sorry, that's going to be confusing when you look for this episode. And that's actually, that's kind of, long story short, Caribbean Airlines was the, like, fifth airline in a chain of airlines that existed one after the other in the Caribbean. They were all the major airlines in the Caribbean. They kind of like one after the other fed down. One of them was British West Indies Airline, which was BWIA. Got it. And that eventually fed into what is Caribbean Airlines. Are they still functioning? Caribbean Airlines? Yeah, they yeah. are. Okay. I was they're, just wondering. Their tail is teal. It has a hummingbird. 
I have an obsession with teal, just so y'all know. Yeah, we'll get into that in the post episode. Which, by the way, go to Patreon. Donate. Subscribe. If, if you want more content than just the stuff we put out every Tuesday, um, we get... You can currently... There's only one Miranda Soda up there. Eventually, we'll get the other one up. We're and not in more. a hurry because no one's a patron yet. But if you want more episodes, you can do that. We, po- we post post-episode conversations. Which are a load of fun. Uh, sometimes we talk about the flights and sometimes we don't. <laughs> you can get to know us as people. A bit more than on here. That conversation is usually a lot funnier than, than, than this. Than this, Because yeah. we have to be a little bit serious when we're talking about this. I mean, we laugh a little bit, but there's there's a lot of seriousness that comes with aircraft accidents. We understand that yes. this affected people's lives and we do appreciate that. And we, we don't like to make that a big funny subject here. Yeah. So no. in the post conversations, we don't talk about the crash as much, and it's generally a lot more funny conversation. Unrelated. We're a lot more lighthearted. Yes, because that's necessary after talking about death. Usually, this didn't result in death or amputations. Or amputations. <laughs> or burned hands. Burnt hands. Uh, and then blooper reel. We have the blooper reel up there. Yeah, that. You can go listen to the cat yell at us. <laughs> that's like half the blooper reel. Yeah. Me singing Batman. 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 Okay. Okay. So I just wanted to plug that again because we still don't have any patrons and I really want us to get patrons. So go on there. Check it out. It's super cool. Yeah. We have a lot of fun making content for you guys and we just want to share it. And like I said, if you want more than just the one per week episode, you get more stuff on Patreon. So, you know. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. Have a great week. Keep Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.